Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast, a show where we celebrate, defend, support, and uplift the voices of the LGBTQIA community. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hey everyone, Lisette here, she, her, Aya. The mission of the Parent Advocate Podcast is to elevate conversations and reframe narratives around trans and non-binary youth to help change hearts and minds. Each week, we bring you our take on all things from the perspective of two BIPOC parents of transgender kids. It's episode four, Lisette. Season two. So exciting. I'm really excited because we've got one of my good friends on today, Nico Lang. Well, welcome once again, everyone, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Let's do it. It's been quite the weekly set. What have you been up to? Well, Daniel and I had to go up to the legislature on Wednesday because we have a school bathroom ban. It's moving through the legislature. If passed, it goes on to the November election ballot. And so it's exhausting. Um, and then we've just been doing the advocacy around that, like connecting families so that they're aware and trying to get them in with Republicans. And we had a meeting this last Tuesday with a few families and the committee chair, but he still passed it through. He had like this weird moment where he cried in the committee hearing and then was like, just passed all the bad bills. I was like, you can't cry and then be a hater at the same time. It makes no sense. So that's been my week. It's not fun. How, how about you? What's your week been like? Oh my goodness. So I'm not sure if you know, but I'm sure you do. Last week I was on the Kelly Clarkson show with Dwayne Wade, Lucina, Peter Betts, and Mariko. And not only were we on the show with Dwayne Wade in the audience with Dwayne Wade, but we actually met Dwayne Wade and Kelly Clarkson. We were kikiing about our nails because he had his nails done. I had my nails done. So we were just sharing nail tips. It was just really, it was a special, special, special time. And one that I'll never forget. That's so exciting. I made sure to share it on all my social. How how jealous is Chewy? That's all I want to know. Um, so jealous. Couldn't that's sleep good. at night, tossing and turning. Yeah, that's what Steven's I figured. More famous. That's what I figured. <laughs> so did he tell you that I, I jumped in on his live yesterday? He did, and he said that he gloated about his two phones, that he was doing two lives at he one did. time. He did. <laughs> He was talking about one of his friends had come on and showed him how to use an app, but it was too technical. He just went and bought another phone. <laughs> yeah, he was like, I don't know how to do this. Get two phones. He's hysterical. So, he was meowing. He had me cracking up. <laughs> he did. He had me cracking up. I really enjoyed it. Did Jose ever tell you about the day that I accidentally was calling his other phone and he wasn't answering because he doesn't ever answer it? And so I was like, why are you ignoring me? I'm trying to, I need you to help me with this. I'm like, what do you need? Because he sent me for like on an errand to get supplies. And then I was like, you can't. And he didn't respond. You can't send me on an errand and then not answer. What is wrong with you? Call the right phone, wifey. I didn't know you were calling. And then it turned out I was calling the other phone. Call the right phone, wifey. So what else happened? (laughs) My niece. Feichi was accepted to Berkeley and Yale's PhD microbiology programs. Like she is a blurred of blurds, like super, super black nerd, super smart. And she's already been accepted to two really prestigious programs. So good on her. Of course, I'm the Pratt uncle, my sister's daughter. So very, very proud. That's awesome. So she's going to be like Ivy of the Ivy. Yeah, Ivy, assuming assuming she does Yale. Like her young, her her older brother, rather, went to Yale. And so <laughs> my brother, Anthony, he posted something in our like family chat about how she's the long prophesized one who will bring together the Harvard and the Yaleys together because she will have gone to both institutions. It's pretty funny. There's a huge <laughs> rivalry in my house with the Harvard and Yales. My sister and my brother went to Harvard. My nephew and my other brother went to Yale and now Beachy can bring them together. I love this. What else? What else? Oh, so the fuckery you're experiencing in Arizona with these bastard Republicans bringing all types of horrible bills to the floor for consideration, bringing them through committee, etc., is also trying to happen in New Jersey. Another school board district, this time in, in Vinland, is trying to basically eliminate the advisory to schools that says children should not be outed to their parents. If a child shares their gender identity, their pronouns, their name with a teacher, that information is supposed to be kept in confidence. But they want to eliminate these provisions and share that information with parents, even though it has been demonstrated time and time again that that is not the safest 
thing to do. So we're hopefully going to be able to push back on some of this fuckery. But yeah, these Republicans are just, they have it in for trans people. And Wednesday's committee hearing, Senator Kavanaugh, who is the only sponsor of nine anti-trans bills that were heard in past on Wednesday, literally said that it was a lie that parents reject their LGBTQIA kids and that it's not a cause for harm for homelessness, that he had never met anyone who was rejected by their parents. And I was like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, there's like decades of years of people sharing their stories of family rejection. It's horrible. I can't. I think we need to send him the USTS transgender non-binary survey that actually as the testimony of trans and non-binary people who were kicked out of their homes because they found out about their children's gender identity. 100%. But Lisette, we have so much more to talk about. So before we get caught up in our little world, let's do today's topics. Let's do it. So this week, the U.S. Trans Survey was released. At least the Early Insights Report was released. It was the largest survey ever of trans and non-binary people. Over 92,000 people were surveyed. And what's interesting about this survey is that trans people overwhelmingly reported that they are happy, notwithstanding what people on the right, like Bombs for Liberty or Alliance Defending Freedom will have you think. Trans people are overwhelmingly happy with their lives. People who undergo hormone therapy are overwhelmingly satisfied with the results. People who have any type of affirming surgery are overwhelmingly happy for having gone through it. And it just flies in the face of everything we've been told. I mean, it didn't take a genius to tell them that. And I'm so glad that we have hard data. I think our kids are proof of that, right? Like you support and affirm kids, they're going to thrive. And the data was proof of that. 98% of respondents said that they were happy with the gender affirming care that they had received, right? That's a huge percentage of 92,000 people. Absolutely. Maryland House Committee killed a bill that would have banned trans kids from playing sports. State Delegate Kathy Seliga, who is a Baltimore County Republican, introduced House Bill 47, which is also known as the Fairness in Girls Sports Act. In 2022, the House Ways and Means Committee killed the Save Women's Sports Act that Seliga introduced during that year's legislative session. Luckily, there's a Democratic majority in both chambers, so the likelihood of these hateful bills passing out of committee, much less making it to the governor's desk, is slim to nil. But you've got to give it to Republicans. They're nothing if not persistent. The LGBTQ plus community in Virginia celebrated a major win this week after all 11 anti-trans bills posed by Republican legislators were defeated by state lawmakers. Among the bills defeated were Senate Bill 37, which would have forcibly outed trans students, and Senate Bill 68, which would have imposed bans on trans student athletes from participating on sports teams that aligned with their gender identity. Stephen, I cannot tell you how happy I am to hear that Virginia was able to kill all 11 bills. I really do hope that this legislative session, while it hasn't lost steam in terms of Republicans filing bills, I hope that they lose steam in terms of allowing them to pass through their Senate and House committees. You and me both. Did you hear about the Missouri Republican candidate who posted a video of herself burning LGBTQIA books with a flamethrower? Do tell. Valentina Gomez. It's always Latine for Trumpers. It really upsets me. Who is seeking the Republican nomination for Secretary of State posted a video on X, formerly known as Twitter, advocating for the burning of books that she deems inappropriate for children. This woman is like a crazed Kid Rock shooting up Bud Light cans. She even said, when I'm Secretary of State, I will burn all books that are grooming, indoctrinating, and sexualizing our children. MAGA, America first. Like, I can't even with these people. They're making up things to be mad about and they're they're engaging in the most ridiculous behavior. And she there's a photo of her circulating with um, at the January 6th insurrection. Like what is this? Why are these people being allowed to run for government when they tried to overthrow? Our government. Child, you are asking the wrong one. But there's so much more we could talk about today on this topic alone, but we've got to get to our guest. I'm so excited. Let's do it. 
Nico Lang is an award-winning non-binary author, reporter, and editor. They are an LGBTQ plus correspondent and frequent contributor to NBC News and Extra. Their work has been featured in Vice, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, Esquire, Harper's Bazaar, Washington Post, Vox, BuzzFeed, Jezebel, The Guardian, Out, The Advocate, and The LA Times. Nico is also the co-editor of the best-selling boys anthology series and author of The Young People Who Traverse Dimensions. Their upcoming book, American Teenager, is scheduled to be released this fall. Everyone, please welcome Nico Lang to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have to say, I'm kind of nervous. This is the first interview I've done for the book, and I'm not used to like being the person who's interviewed. This is super new for me. We're loving that. We're loving that. So we're going to get right into it. When I was preparing for this show, I read an article you wrote about Dave Chappelle for The Daily Beast, in which you posited that Dave Chappelle is better than his transphobic jokes. So my first question to you is, is he really? No, I didn't write that headline. I let my editor have it. My editor was so nice about the actual editing of the story and was like so lovely and affirming and was like, this is all great that he put his own headline on it. And I was like, you know what? I'll let you have it. It's fine. You were so good about everything else that you can call that story whatever you want. But no, when it came out, I like, I think I even put a disclaimer on my Facebook that was like, I do not think he is better than this anymore, which is actually kind of the point of the piece is that, you know, after watching the show or his most recent special, it really made me wonder, like, has he been this person all along? And we just didn't know, you know, there's that old, there's that old saying about uh, like uh, when someone... I'm really bad at quoting things, like hilariously bad at it. Um, but so help me out. It's something about when somebody tells you who they are, believe them the first time. I think that we just didn't believe Dave Chappelle before. And I think I've still been kind of holding out that like, maybe he's not this guy. Maybe like he'll see the error of his ways. Maybe he can be better or he'll learn. But it's like, I think I just didn't, I wasn't listening the first time. He already told me who he was. Like, why wasn't I paying attention? I also think too, though, and this is to counter what you're saying, and Stephen's going to be like, Lizette, shut up. But like, I think too, Chappelle is important in the sense that you can be relevant and have anchored values in some social justice spaces and be completely ignorant in others, Yeah. right? And I think it's proof and should be an allowance for people to recognize that we all carry biases and that we all, have a, we all need to be constantly working and being better when it comes to evolving as a human being and being aware of the biases we carry and he first he is the the classic i'm gonna i'm gonna hold on right to this and not evolve and grow i don't know if it like totally eradicates some of the commentary he had made prior to this right like really thoughtful and anchored in like racial justice i don't know what are your thoughts steven we're not here to interview me we are here to interview nico and but so Chappelle is so great to talk about okay let's let's get on to uh, a more in-depth question around the manuscript you sent us for your upcoming book, American Teenager. Can you talk about the book and how the project came about? Yeah, sure. It's interesting in that I wanted to do a book like this, I think for a really long time, there was just kind of always an excuse not to in my brain. And I think at a certain point, I just ran out of excuses and it was kind of the right time in my life that to start thinking about putting something like this together. Like an agent reached out to me, oh, what is time? It would have been last year. When was when was Roe versus Wade repealed? That was last year. Last right? year. Last yeah. year. Around, it was around the time of Roe versus Wade repeal Wade's repeal to talk about another article I'd written for Vice. I'm about trans youth. Um, and he wanted to flesh that out into a book. Um, and it was about specifically a mom who created a church in support of her trans son in Oklahoma, I believe. And I really loved that story. And I loved talking to that mom. And I thought it was just such like such a great thing to write about. But I just didn't think a book was there yet because the project was so new, right? That you could, you know, spend a year writing about this thing. And that totally like, pardon my French, but like goes tits up, right? And I just, I was like, I'd like to give that project some time and just wait it out before we try to wait into something like that. Because who knows, it could become a cult. It probably won't. But you know, 
<laughs> like, I don't want to like be like, yeah, this thing's so great. And then it turns out they're going Nexium on everybody. So I was like, let's not do that one. Um, but I really liked the um the book editor. He was really nice. And I don't usually like book editors. I like, I don't know, it's just like the, the folks I've talked to before, we just really haven't vibed. But this guy was so like warm and welcoming that I was like, you know, I have an idea that I've been sitting on for a long time. Would you like to hear it? And then we just talked about that instead. Um, and he was really into it. And just getting like that support and that level of someone going, yes, I think this idea is good is really just what I've been waiting for. That I think it might be surprising to some people because I've been doing queer journalism for such a long time, but I haven't always had people just like give me things or like open doors for me. Like so many of the opportunities that I've had, I've had to create for myself. So it really took somebody like approaching me and going, yes, I think this is a good idea because otherwise I would just talk myself out of it. And I don't think if not for my agent, Rick, like, I don't think this book would have ever happened. Like this would have like this, this thing never would have come together because I never would have taken that initiative. Like it wasn't that I didn't believe in myself. It's that I just didn't think people would let me do it. Cause my, I can't, I can't even, I can't even allow you to tell this lie anymore because you know, your book is so timely, like in the midst of these national efforts to marginalize transgender people and their families in states across this country, you are bringing a story that humanizes this demographic in a way that hasn't been done heretofore. So I I really, you know, I'm challenging this notion that it was just th this opportunity that came to you because I feel like it was intentional. And I feel like once you had the idea, it was important for you to bring American teenager to life. So I really want to know, based on my premise for how this book came to be, what you really hope you're going to accomplish when people read your book. Sure. And I do want to clarify, it's not like imposter syndrome as much as like an understanding of like how the industry works in that like queer voices are so devalued that everyone's always trying to take space away from you or like not give you space or not let you claim space. I have no ego problems around here. My um my friends make fun of me sometimes for like how I talk about my work because it's like especially when like people won't give you opportunities, you have to be your own hype person and you have to be like, I'm the best here's why, or else people just will not let you in the door at all. So like the fact that I've been able to get in the door whatsoever is really just me like demanding the space the best that I can. And I think this time I got really lucky and that somebody like for the first time in a long time, you know, my agent was like, actually here, let me open the door for you. And that just felt really nice. And for me, it's like the reason I wanted to do this book is really Stephen, exactly what you were saying that you know, I've been doing this reporting for such a long time. And I know so many of these families really well now, you know, families of trans kids. The first family I ever interviewed, I was just talking with her about this actually, was Chelsea Morrison, you know, back in 2016, 2017, one of the, I think it was 2016, we're going to say that. And it's been so like lovely and wonderful, like getting to like be with her family over the years and like watching her daughter grow up. And I have these like really lovely personal experiences with these kids and with these families. And I just felt like the families I know and the like depth, which I know them, hasn't been really reflected in a lot of the media about like trans kids in their lives. Like I just, and I wanted more that, you know, if we've scratched the surface, that means that there's an opportunity there to get to the rest of that iceberg. I'm mixing metaphors here, so forgive me. And as a journalist, I see there an opportunity. And I knew that I had the resource and resources and I had the connections and I had the trust to do this. And I knew like, you know, to toot my own horn, right? I knew I could do it better than 99% of journalists in the world because I already knew these families. I already had these connections. It would actually be relatively easy. So I think for me, I felt like I had a responsibility to do it. That it's like, like, if you can do it, you have to. And I think what's great too, is that you talk with the youth in this book about their lives and it's not necessarily focused on their transness. It's like focusing on their lived experience and what this has been like. And so why did you find that to be like the most important kind of viewpoint to come from like the whole person as opposed to just their identity, which has been under attack? 
think about cis kids. How often do they talk about being cis? Almost never. And it's like, I wanted trans kids to get that same opportunity that it's like, sure, I think there, I think there are some people who are like, oh, being queer isn't a very important part of me or being trans isn't a very important part of me. Like, I think it is a really important part of these kids' lives being trans. It defines like so much of how they're treated by the state and by politicians. And I think that's really important, but they have lives outside of that too. And I just never hear that. Like I was interviewing this trans football player in um, in South Dakota a couple of years ago for a story for them. And it was so fun and I didn't get to include it in the piece and I still kick myself over it. But for like 15 minutes, we just talked about how much we love music and particularly about the band Slow Dive, which is like one of my favorite bands of all time. And I made sure to still mention Slow Dive in this book. I got it in. Um, but, and that was just so lovely and unexpected in this like human moment of just like two people connecting. And you don't really get that in a lot of the media about, of trans kids, right? You don't get those just like human moments that have nothing to do with any of this and are just how the rest of us experience our lives all the time. That I wanted that. Like one of my favorite things in the whole book is in the chapter about Jack, who's the trans girl in Florida. You know, we just talk about philosophy on her balcony while she smokes cigarettes. And that's like a moment that trans kids, like uh, maybe in a different context, right? Like get to have all the time, right? They're talking about like books, about art, about like the poem that they just read with their friends, they're hanging out, they're watching TV, but I've never seen anything like re that reflected ever in any form of media about trans kids. And it's just like, that's even true of the things that I've gotten to write because so much of it is like, like directly about the news cycle. But I just wanted to take a step back from that to give people something a little different because it's like trans kids have to be tired of that too. You know, that kind of monotony, like you don't want to just be portrayed in the same way over and over again. And cis kids get that all the time. So it's like, why not like help trans kids get like even a monicum of that? I, I really love that perspective because it's so true in this climate that we're in. And I'm speaking to you specifically as a journalist who's covered a lot of this. You have a unique perspective and a lens into these culture wars that are playing themselves out and seem to have captured much of the public's attention, at least a lot of our elected officials' attention. But as someone who makes a living researching the topics they write about, sitting with people for months on end and really getting to know them. What advice do you have for regular people when it comes down to processing the news they're reading about the transgender community at large? Mm, that's a really good question. I think I would say the best you can to get to know people. We process so much information about like what's happening in the world, right? You know, this bill is being introduced here or, you know, there's this attack on trans lives here. And I think that that's really important, right? But it can also be quite overwhelming. And it can be informative without really informing us, right? That if you're just hearing about all these like bills that are passing, like that's all well and good, but how much does it really tell you about trans people and how they're living their lives? Like you can read a billion of these articles and still not really learn anything about trans people. And I think the easiest way to do that is to just simply get to know somebody. Because something you'll notice in this book, and I did this on purpose, and I'm, I'm interested to hear about it in the reviews, that I over explain everything except for trans kids' lives. Like, I think there's a part where I explain who Nicolas Cage is, right? Um, and that was on purpose because trans kids are like so used to having their identities over explained and like, these are what pronouns are. This is what it means to be this. And this is what it means to be that. And I think education is really important. So I don't want to minimize that. But having to have others like educate themselves about you all the time, I just imagine it's really exhausting. Like as a non-binary person who sort of like presents in the way that I do, I feel like I'm having to explain that to people a lot of the time, right? Like, oh, you're non-binary, but you don't look very non-binary. And I'm like, actually, there are many ways to look non-binary. Let's break that down. And it's like, that's exhausting. I don't want Want to do that and these kids don't want to do that either and i thought one of the easiest ways for me to explain the lives of these trans kids was to not explain them, to just present them as they are, as like a full person. And then people realize that maybe these like silly questions they have about like, oh, what does this mean? Or what's going on down there? Aren't really that important. The more important thing is this person's lived experience, you know, seeing them as a whole person. And as Lisette said before, like I really wanted to put the whole person first because I think that explains so much more than like all these other things 
we think are important really do. You know, that the most important thing is that we just see people's humanity and validate that. So I think for people who, you know, want to educate themselves or like want to get past the news cycle of all this, like just get connected to community, like meet people, like become friends with them. That's going to explain so much more about like the lives of trans folks that I think even this book will. Like, I hope that like when people read this book, they go like, let's, let's say you don't know a trans person, Right that you might think to yourself, wow, I'm missing out like on a lot of like beauty in the world that trans people have like so much to offer. And I myself am like, and missing out on that by not having these like folks in my lives. I can empathize so deeply with what you're saying. And I know that Stephen can too, because often if I'm traveling or even if I meet people, you know, Arizona is not, there's not a lot of people who are natively born to Arizona. So a lot of times people are like, oh, you're Mexican. And it's like, you're Mexican American, explain this to me, you're first generation. And it becomes a conversation around caricature, right? Like, because there's a deeper richness to culture, to lived experience that you really can't get to if you're living in trans 101, non-binary 101, you know, uh, first gen 101, you can't get to that. So often it becomes like these diluted conversations that become caricatures of who people are without ever really anchoring into like who they are deeply. And I think we see that too in like this book in the ways in which you write so inclusively, it's flushed out. Somebody could read this and be like, oh, that's how you speak inclusively to people everywhere. And I'm wondering, was that something that came natural to you? I mean, obviously I'm assuming that it is because I'm a firm believer in the way that you love someone will dictate how other people love them. And I think when you read inclusive language, like someone's giving you a guide and a vehicle to hear it and be like, I can do that. Was that intentional? And what are you hoping people will do as they read and like learn from the ways in which you're communicating with such inclusivity? Yeah, I think I just wanted it to feel really natural, right? That I'm treating these kids the same way that you would like any other kids, right? That's with just like warmth and humanity, that we're not really making a very big point about people's identities. We're not really drawing attention to things. You know, one thing we did put in the book is that for the third chapter, for Micah's chapter, you know, Mikey uses fluid pronouns. So, you know, they switch between uh, he, she, and they. So each one of the chapters is written with a different pronoun because I thought that was the best way to like really validate all forms of their identity. And my editor wanted to put a note in um, because of, you know, to sort of explain to readers uh, like why that was, like why we were making that choice. And I was, I sort of lost that battle, unfortunately, because there is a note in the book. Um, but my hope was that people would figure it out, right? That readers are smart, like they're not stupid. Um, that they'll, it might take them a second, their brain might need a moment to adjust, but they'll be like, oh, I see what we're doing here. And that was what I really hoped to do with the rest of the book was that people would figure it out. And I just wanted to trust people to get it and to be able to put that aside and just treat these kids like people. Like if you notice, there's not like a glossary in the book of terminology, right? That I, I thought about doing that. And then I realized that that in a way was sort of doing the kind of 101 thing that I was hoping to get past. That I was hoping that this book would be almost like a 201 course or like a 301 course where you're sort of being like thrown in the middle of it. And maybe at first that's really overwhelming, but you'll figure it out, right? Um, it's just like a college course, you'll catch up. Um, and I hope that readers themselves feel trusted um, by doing that. And for these kids, I hope it makes them feel validated that they got the chance to be treated just like anyone else, to have the kind of same kinds of conversations that anybody in the world else in the world does. Like a lot of these kids have talked to the media before, right? that for the most part, it's not really their first time at the rodeo. But I imagine that they've never gotten to talk about these kinds of things with the journalists before, like things that have nothing to do with their identities. Like when I hung out with Kylie for the last chapter, so much of what we talked about was K-pop, right? I'm not much of a K-pop person. It's not that I don't think it's like good or anything. I just don't know very much about it. So she basically just like explained K-pop to me and like broke it down. And I was like, you know, for Kylie, who's been doing this work for such a long time and is very exhausted by it, 
which is more or less what her chapter is about. She's never gotten to do that before. She's not been, never gotten to present like a side of her identity that has nothing to do with her transness necessarily, but like speak so much to who she is as a person. And for me, I think that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to get at character for each of these kids, right? That almost every detail was less in service of their trans identity than developing them as a character. Like who is Kylie? Who is Ridian? Who is Wyatt? Who is Micah? And for every chapter, even when you get, you'll get the breakouts where we talk about the parents, right? And their own story. And I still felt like the parents' stories explained so much of like that kid's life and what they'd been through and what they'd, they'd experienced. So even when we were talking about something else, or even when I was discussing something completely outside of the family altogether, like it had to be in service of the kids and explaining who they are. And if it wasn't, we actually cut it out. There was actually in the South Dakota chapter, there was so much stuff about local politics that I thought was really fascinating, but I realized like that doesn't explain anything about why it's life, you know? So sadly we had to, I cut all that stuff out uh, just because I, I wanted the kids to be like the kids to be put first. And there was something nice about that. I think too, like for the kids themselves, like to really like be put first. Together. Yeah. I have a question for you that like kind of came from what we've been talking about. I just had this, like, maybe that's what we do when we do trans one-on-one over and over again. Do you think it reinforces taboo to constantly have to be re-educating? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I don't think it's stigmatizing necessarily. I think it can be, right? I think it depends on how you're doing. Like, I think education just in general is really important, but I think we just need lots of different kinds of education. And because of where we are right now in the history of the LGBT movement and where trans folks are and sort of coming out to the world and like introducing themselves to the American public in a way that I don't think they've had the opportunity to do like through the media before, right? That we're still kind of in that one-on-one phase. And I think that one-on-one phase is really important and critical. So I don't want to devalue that at all. But I think we also need 201 and 301, right? But we haven't gotten to do that because we're so busy doing 101 over and over and over again, especially, you know, the advocates who are fighting against these bills in all these different places all over the country. They're doing trans 101s all the time because they're trying to explain to people who have no idea what this is, right? And for me with this book, I think there is a little bit of accepting that people who come into this might already have that 101 in a good way or a bad way, right? There are going to be people who read this book because they have someone who's trans in their lives or they're curious about the lives of trans youth and they already know a little something. And then you're going to have people on the other side who read this book because they already know a little something about trans kids and they don't think they should exist. So I think I'm accepting that the average reader for this might know, like might have that kind of work done for them already. So it means that we can jump into the 201 and the 301 or the stuff that really has no nothing to do with the curriculum at all, right? That so much of the, I think the lesson of this book is that there are things that you can better understand about trans people when you're not even talking about transness, when you're just talking about like their like individual identities. Because so much about when we were pitching this book, you know, I think there were editors at publishing houses who we spoke with who I think wanted it to be more universal, like uh, experiences that would speak to every single person's experience of transness. And I thought it was more interesting when you get more particular and idiosyncratic, because when you have all of these different views and opinions and lived experiences, that's when you get more interesting. And by doing that, I think that's when it becomes universal, right? When you have so many people's particular experiences and you add them all up together, that's when you get that like full, like beautiful mosaic, which is really what I wanted this, like this book to look like is that through all these like little pieces and these little details, that's when you get like, you know, the, the whole big picture. And I didn't think you could really achieve that by pretending that one person's story speaks for everyone because that's not really how it works. You know, it's such a big, diverse community. So I don't know. I hope I achieve that with the book. I hope people read this and it gets them to that 201 or the, th that 301 place that they sort of learn something by not necessarily learning anything at all, by just hanging out with these kids and being like, oh, this is their daily life. It's kind of like funny. It's kind of sad. 
sometimes it's kind of boring and it's just like the rest of our lives. You know, it's interesting that that we're talking about the power of storytelling. We talked about this after I read your manuscript. I was like, oh my God, Nico, that was amazing. But you started the book talking about the Shapleys and the challenges they were facing in Texas with the onslaught of anti-trans bills in that state, which was forcing them to make difficult decisions about whether to leave or to stay. But what stories do you find to be most helpful in helping people to understand the impact of the escalation of these attacks on trans people and their families? That's a good question. And you and I spoke about this before, but the reason I did that structurally with the Shapleys, and I think this is really interesting and important to note, is because I wanted to start out with the story that people were expecting and then give them something they wouldn't expect at all. And I think the book as it goes on, gets like more and more idiosyncratic because I knew I couldn't do that right up front, right? I couldn't start with, you know, uh, like standing on the balcony uh, with a trans girl in Florida and, you know, talking about philosophy as she smokes cigarettes, right? Because people would be like, wait, what is this book even? I'm confused. So I wanted to sort of like start out with, you know, with stories I thought would really draw people in. Kimberly's been really amazing at telling her story and helping Kai to tell her story. And these days, Kai doesn't even need it because, you know, that girl is like, she is such a good, like, self-advocate. And people know that story. So that can kind of draw people in because it's like, how do you say? Like running into an old friend who's like, ah, let me lead you through. And then, you know, like slowly that kind of comfort like drops away a little bit as you get into these stories that are like increasingly complex and just different from what you expected. And I think that as the book goes on, I wanted to give people like more and more something that would be completely different than the book that they wanted to read. And I also started to write it more idiosyncratically in the way that I wanted to write it from the beginning. But I knew if I hit people with that right up front, they would still be like, wait, this is strange. So for me, I think the way I wanted to do this was by giving people something really different. Because I think people have this idea of the kinds of stories that they want to hear, but then you end up with the same kinds of stories over and over again. And there's just so much diversity with like, with these kids and their communities and their families. There's so many different kinds of stories. And I feel like in the media, we kind of privilege the same story over and over again. So I think to me, like, it's less any kind of story in particular than getting to all different kinds of stories. To me, my only regret about this is that I only highlighted eight kids right? There are so many kinds of stories that I really wanted that I couldn't get to in this book. Like I wanted a Mormon story. That would have been incredible to see like a Mormon family who was like united in support of their trans kid or, you know, who had these complicated feelings and are able to sort of push through it to love their child better. I think that would have been really valuable to have. And unfortunately that just didn't happen for this one because, you know, because of the way just things worked out, but Hey, there's a sequel maybe uh, some, sometime in the future. So we'll do it then. Yeah, I think about something my friend Jen Richards, who's a, a lovely writer and actress, um, said a long time ago that the answer to any problem of representation is more. That like you just need more kinds of stories, more diversity, like more kinds of people who are being represented. And with this book, you know, that felt really important to me, not just because I think diversity is important, but because as a writer, I just think it's more interesting when I can put a lot of different kinds of stories in because, you know, it gives me more to play with. And I think for the reader, it also engages you more. And for our community, it's important because it's just how we live. So I think to me, the way that we get to the truth of what trans kids experience is to let lots of different kinds of kids speak rather than letting the same kinds of kids speak over and over and over again. And I, I don't want to like shame those kids. I don't think it's like, that's not like their fault or something. It's not like they're like taking up too much space. I think a lot of it has to do with like access and privilege. And for this book, the fact that I was able to like give people pseudonyms or like change little details, that meant that different kinds of voices were able to be heard, people who might not have felt safe to do that before. So I think that really comes down to like us as a media, like what are we doing to make it safe for people to speak? Lots of different kinds of voices can be heard. Like how are we creating spaces for people? And I don't think we've done that good of a job yet. I don't think I've always done a great job of that. But I think with this with this book, when people read it, I hope it's a reminder that we just all need to do a little bit better. And you really never know what's going to catch 
someone's attention. Like I recently, uh, not recently, but a few months back, had an, an opportunity to talk to Jennifer Finney Boylan. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote, she's not there. I remember reading Janet Mock's first book and then reading Jennifer Finney Boylan's When Daniel Began Social Transition. And for me, the most poignant scene that really like moved me deeply was this uh, scene where she's talking about her mom ironing her dad's shirt. And telling her, you're going to wear shirts like this one day. And her three-year-old self being like, why would I ever want to wear that? Why would I wear that? But Daniel was three when he was giving us these insights, right? And so, like, I I related to that. I was like, I've I've lived that. I've been that mom, right? That's like, oh, look, you're going to be so cute in this thing. And, like, maybe I don't want to ever wear that, you know? And so this goes into our other question, too, of, like, how do you feel that media portrayals of transgender individuals impact the experience of trans youth? And what role do you think accurate representation plays in fostering better understanding for trans youth themselves looking to be reflected back at them and for their families, not just as educational tools for uh, allies and or, uh, you know, unknowing people. Wow, you were coming with the complex questions, like 301, baby, it's right here. Um, no, I love it. I'm not, I'm, uh, yeah, um, but that's a great question. And I think it's actually answered a little bit in the book itself in that in the first chapter, the Wyatt chapter, he talks about how difficult it was to see all of this press coverage about bad bills all the time. And for that to essentially be like the dominant narrative about trans kids is that there's all this legislation taking rights away from him. And you see that also reflected in Trevor Project data, right? Um, They have polled trans youth and queer youth across the country. And youth are paying attention to these bills. They're paying attention to these laws. They're intimately aware of what politicians are doing and that they are trying to take away their rights. And because they're listening, they're also taking that in. You know, and that's difficult when you're like 15 or 16. It's difficult when I'm like 35, right? And there are some days, you know, I run this account called Queer News Daily that, you know, I won't post till like two o'clock because it's like all the news was depressing today. It took me a while to get to it because I just didn't want to put that out there. I knew that it was important. I was going to do it eventually. But it's like, you know, it takes me a while to just like get up the nerve. So for these kids who are like living in the middle of it all the time and don't have like a choice in the matter, like they don't really get to disengage, like that can be really, really, really tough. And for why, you know, he deactivated all the news apps on his phone and, you know, created this little like media bubble for himself. But there's really only so much you can do because you're still going to hear it from your family. Like if a really bad bill passes, his mom's going to tell him or his sister's going to tell him, right? You can only hide so much. So I think because kids are getting so much of that like bad press all the time and they're like media ecosystem little bubbles, it becomes more and more important to have stories that are different to balance that out with other emotions. Like it can't just be like sad news all the time. There's got to be like happiness. There's got to be joy. But I think with this book, something I wanted to do is every, it was interesting. Every time in the like early pitch process, I would tell like friends about this book, they'd be like, oh, it's, you know, about like queer joy, right? About trans joy. And I'm like, Yeah, kind of, but it's about all of the other emotions that we get denied, right? Because, you know, queer and trans people live such complex lives the same way that everybody else does, right? But it's like, there's only like two emotions we're allowed to have. It's like, you got to be sad or happy. And it's like, well, sometimes I'm neither. Sometimes I am frustrated. Sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I'm whelmed. Sometimes I'm bored. Sometimes I'm diffident. And I wanted just like, like a book that created space for queer and trans diffidence, you know? Like, because the rest of humanity gets like access to the complexity of emotion all the time, but not us apparently because of the ways in which that we are constantly tied to the news cycle and everything needs to be in some way a reaction to that. Like if we're experiencing sadness, it's because bad bills have been passed. If we're experiencing joy, it is our resilience and, and despite the fact that bad bills have been passed. And it's like, there's so much more to life than that. And obviously that's a really big part of the book because it takes place during this year where we were seeing an unprecedented onslaught of anti-LGBT bills. But so much of the story for me was about how do you carve a life outside of that? What does it look like to just live your life in spite of all that? Not even as a reaction to it, but because you have no choice, right? That's what survival is. It's survival is just going on with your day. And I think you see these kids doing that, like figure out, figuring out what is my identity despite all this, or not even despite all this, what is my identity in the same way that it would have been even if all this didn't happen? 
how do I love someone like just as I would, even if all this hadn't. And I'm really glad that I got to be on that journey with these kids because I think I've become quite cynical after doing this for such a long time. You know, I worked four years of Trump, like every day I didn't get to take a day off because there was no such thing as a day off. I worked even on the weekends and, you know, two years of Biden before I started writing this book. And, you know, obviously he's been a lot better for our community than the last guy, but we're still just seeing at the state level, all these bad bills and just all this like sadness and anger and just hopelessness that I think I'd lost that hope. And I think these kids taught me a lot about like how to find my hope or how to just like be a person anyway, even when the world won't let you do that. So I think with this book, like it's, you know, it's less about like good and bad representation than representation that feels like life as I know it. And there are so few chances as a queer person. I feel like I've really gotten to see that, whether it's for like trans people or for queer people as a whole, because like we just get so limited to like one aspect of like of our like lives and our identities. You like you look at that. There was that movie Boyhood, the Richard Linklater movie that came out in 2013, 2014. Lovely film some quirks, but mostly lovely. And like, imagine what that would look like as a queer person, right? This like narrative that tries to encompass like all of life or everything you'd experienced or like that John Steinbeck version, right? Where like, it just encompasses the, just the world all through the lens of this one person. And I kind of hope to do that a little bit. Like I don't know, obviously not as good as John Steinbeck. I hope to be one day. Um, but, you know, there's so much we've just been missing out on. So I hope that this book kind of got to some of that, to some of the things that people have never seen before, that I've never seen before. I took a lot of inspiration from uh, Greta Gerwig, actually, saying that Barbie was just a bunch of stuff she liked. And I was like, what if we just put a bunch of stuff we like in this book? Some stuff the kids like, stuff that I like. Let's just put it in here. Let's just make it a, like about all the things we've never gotten to say. And that, I think that's when I started to have fun with the book because I realized like, oh, we can like, we can do something fun here. So at the end of the day, like, yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's a heartbreaking book. It's a sad book sometimes. It's a funny book sometimes. But like, I just wanted it to be something that we all would love, that even if everybody else hated it, if all the reviews sucked and they were like, this is trash. Like, I knew that these kids loved it and I loved it because there was just so much love in it. So let me ask you about the question I wanted to ask you since you sent me the book. Why American Teenager? Oh, that's easy. So I'm a rom-com nerd. I love romantic comedies. It was so funny because kids, like, when they're, like, battling their parents growing up, they're, like, things they want to rebel about. They're, like, I want to smoke. I want to do drugs or, like, whatever. I was fighting my parents to let me watch romantic comedies, like, when I was, like, too young for them. I just wanted to watch Julia Roberts movies, and I did not understand why my grandparents would not let me watch them. And one of the tropes of rom-coms is that they are often named after songs. And I love that about, like, about movies. And I'd been thinking about the title, and I was really stuck on it. We had this one that I don't even remember anymore because it wasn't very good and it was quite grim. It was something like Surviving America or it's just something very serious. I know, right? I saw that face was that. It was a working title. <laughs> um, but I was sitting in the car one day and the song American Teenager by Ethel Kane had just come out, which is about her experience growing up as a trans girl in Florida. It's funny, it both is and isn't about being trans in the way that I think this book is. And it's just such a good song. And it hit me. I was like, oh, that's the name of the book, American Teenager. And it had like that rom-com vibe of being named after a song you really love like you know it was very like Nancy Myers to me and I like the tone of that because I think it gave the book a little bit of a different tone than people were expecting when I pitched this editors would have this idea editors that would that we talked to would have this this thing in their mind of what the book should be right and I wanted to make sure that I was sort of staking my claim on it before people even open the book of saying that this is going to be different than you think it is like we don't have a trans pun in the title. It's not even mentioned until you get to the subtitle. American Teenager, it's kind of a little bit vague. It's a little more universal, but it just gives it a bit of a different tone to it. And I also like the universality of it, right? That we're saying at the end of the day, that these kids, they're trans, and I think that's really important, and we're not erasing that, but they're also just kids, you know? And I think that we forget that. We treat them like, like I don't know, like monsters or like these like kids who are being abused or like all these things, but we rarely give them the gift of just letting them be teenagers. 
So to be able to do that right up front, I thought that was an important mission statement for me. And I might have called it just kids, but uh, but Patty Smith, unfortunately, took that. I will be uh, exacting my revenge, Patty, one day. For now, I thought that American Teenagers just to me felt really perfect. I think I even say in the, you know, there's a little introduction where you have to explain what the book is. I think I even explained that for me, there's this idea that America was great in the past and that we have to get back to this like ideal that never really existed. But it's like, it's our diversity that makes us strong. It's like how different we are from each other. It's letting people like be free and to explore themselves and figure out who they are. And I just don't think there's anything really more American than that. There's nothing more human than that. So getting to say like that these kids are like what makes America great. It's what like, they're what make the world great. That just like, I don't know. I loved getting to do that. And I'm really glad that like this got to be the title. Somebody told me the other day that, that we should change the title because they didn't like it. And I was like, that is not happening, but thank you for the advice. Yeah. It's going you're right like, in. this is staying. And I think you're saying something really poignant. There might be a silver lining that the GOP didn't realize. Because I remember when Daniel had his first conversation with Chase about trans prom. And Daniel's like, I'm tired of being told I'm going to die. I'm going to die if anti-trans legislation passes. And I'm going to die if I... I don't have my rights. And Daniel was like, I'm just so fucking tired of being told this, right? That that there's no way forward for me. And so the silver lining is what Daniel told Chase. He was just like, I'm tired of being told I'm going to die. And so this has to be joyful, right? This has to be joyful. We have to talk about how really I'm just a happy kid living my life day to day. What I want to ask you is like, if in a dream world, we weren't facing this onslaught of political attacks on our children and our kids could just be American teenagers with like the mundaneness of teenage life, right? What would stories look like to you? What would you write if that existed, if we were in that reality? You know, it's really wild. I don't even know if I can conceive of an answer to this question. Like, I don't know if I've ever even thought about something like this. I don't think I've given myself permission to think about this. And it's really interesting. You know, I'll get back to the question, but I, I think this kind of ties in. Like, I'm really glad that you said that about, you know, Daniel pushing for this narrative where it's just not just about death, because that's something I've had to do in my own reporting, is that for a, a long time, you would see this phrase, reporters would use it over and over again. They would say like life-saving care, right? That gender-affirming care is life-saving. And that's totally true, right? It can absolutely save people's lives. But it's then playing into that narrative about death, right? And there were so many people in my life who said who would say that to me, it's not even just about like whether I'll live or die, it's that this is necessary anyway. That even if it weren't like those life or death stakes, I should get to have this care because I deserve it, because I need it, because it'll help me be the best person that I am. And that, you know, we just have to rewrite the narrative there of just like telling a different story than it only being about death. And I think that's really important. And when it comes to like envisioning of what those other narratives like could be or should be, I don't even know yet. Like, I really wish that I had a good answer to this question. And I'm actually getting a little bit emotional because it's like, it's so like to think about that world where we don't have to do this all the time. I don't know. I don't even know what I would do with my life. It sounds great. You know, I made I, myself cry too. Cause I was just like, <laughs> how did I get us here? I'm sorry, Nico, but no, 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 it's fine. So Nico, I, I just want you to know, I had asked her to ask you a whole different question and we wouldn't be in our fields right now, but she wouldn't do it. She wasn't looking at the text. So now we're all in our fields and it's okay to not have an answer to that question. Cause it is, it is a lot to contemplate. How do we envision a world in which we are not under constant attack? Like, what does that even look like? It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. So I'm going to give you a soft, softer question. No, no, it's okay. I do want to say though, I think that's that you saying that's really interesting because I don't know how much you know about my previous work was that, but I didn't even start out doing this. Like I wrote entertainment stories. Stories, right? Like I thought I would like, I wanted to be like the next Roger Ebert. This wasn't even I, what I envisioned for my life. It was just in 2016, you know, 2015 also when, you know, Trump was running and we started seeing things like at the beginning of, you know, getting really bad, like, and it was clear that there's, you know, a tide was shifting. I knew that all of the things I'd been writing before that while they mattered to me, they weren't as important as fighting for people's lives. So I had to just like give that up to go do something else to, you know, be, you know, part of this movement to like tell people stories to use like storytelling for change. And you know, sometimes I think back to like that kid who just got to be like silly and write about <clears throat> and write about like dumb things, right? That had nothing to do with anything. 
And I miss that a little bit. I miss when we all just got to be silly, when everything just weren't like so life or death stakes all the time. Like, what would it mean to just like live a week without having to think about who's the governor of Florida? You know, like, I would love that for all of us. I would love that gift of like something I feel like I at one time got to have. And I, I don't want to like, you know, nostalgize too much because maybe I have a little bit of rose colored glasses on the way things used to be or the way my life used to be. But I kind of miss that for me. And I miss that for like all of us when we just didn't have to talk about this all the time. You know, there was a time in my life in which I didn't have to sit on podcasts, even really great podcasts, and, you know, talk about the survival of trans kids. And just like, yeah, I don't know if I have a great way to wrap this up, but like to think about like what we would all be doing if we weren't doing this. It's like, it's such a utopia in a way, but I am glad that we have each other. I'm glad that it's brought me so much closer to many of the people in my life because I don't know if I would value them the same way that I did now. I think that, you know, that kid who was silly and having fun, I don't think I valued people that well, right? I think this has taught me to hold people closer, to really cherish people because we don't even know how long we're like gonna have each other, right? Because there are friends that I've lost by doing this work. There are like leaders in the movement we've lost by doing this work. That death narrative is there because it does happen to people. But like, it's taught me to really value life and to value and cherish our community because we can't take it for granted. Thank you for saying that. I don't think people really appreciate just the gravity of the situation we find ourselves in every day, especially if they're not in our shoes, if they're not part of the community, if they don't have proximity to the community. It's just something in the news cycle that doesn't impact them whatsoever. And yet for many people, it is literally life and death and not to be overly dramatic or over sensationalize it but it's the reality it, it, it's the reality today is the first day of black history month and one of the first posts that i saw was a, about a 20 year old gay black man who took his life because he was bullied by everybody around him and that's the reality we often find ourselves in is just not being able to be happy-go-lucky because life is often very difficult and very hard for many members of our community whether they're in a red state or not that constant news cycle that constant drumbeat of attack 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 is hard to ignore it's hard to just push off it's hard to avoid and so i i really do i i really do apologize for lisette making us all cry on this damn podcast okay maybe we won't show the video of this part of but I want us to end on a much more positive note. So what are three pieces of advice that you would give to parents of transgender kids to help them achieve joy in their lives today? I would hope these are really obvious. You know, you've got to love your kid no matter what. That one of the stories that resonated with me most in the book was Micah's story. You know, Micah is a gender fluid teen who lives in West Virginia with their mom, who is a white lesbian. Their mom comes from a different time, right? Where just there was different terminology that was used. And it's not like an excuse for anybody, but it's just like the way we talked about people is really different. And she's had a really difficult time figuring out the language to talk about Micah's identity. During our one, one of our conversations, you know, Dawn said that she thought that being gender fluid was something that Micah made up, right? That it's just like, you know, Micah just concocts these like crazy ideas in their head, right? And it's like, obviously that's not true and it's very funny. But, you know, it just shows that there's like a different mindset there. Dawn, when she read the chapter, I think felt very almost like judged in a way because it is very messy, right? That it's really honest about that it can be difficult to like love your child for who they are, not difficult because of them, difficult because of you and your own biases and where you're coming from, right? That can be really difficult to like unlearn. And that can take years, right? Some people, it'll take a lifetime and you're still not there. But it's worth doing because, you know, you've got to love your kids first, you know, past all that stuff, past where you're coming from. And I think what I loved about their story so much is that they do love each other so much, like so much. It just like hurts sometimes. Right. And that like even being close to each other can hurt because they love each other so much. And that was a really important story to me, despite the messiness of it, because I think it gets to that like love is the most important thing, even if you don't get it right all the time, even if you're not perfect, like you still love 
and you've still got your heart. So the rest of that, it just doesn't matter quite as much. Of course, people's pronouns matter, people's identities matter, all that should be respected. But like, love to me is just always the most important thing. So I hope that parents, you know, even if you're in that messy space still, even if you'll always be in that messy space somewhat, like, just remember that, just love your kid first. Um, And I think that it's really important to create spaces where your kid can just be a kid, where they don't have to think about any of this stuff. They don't have to like go fight at the legislature or lobby for their rights where they just get to be themselves. Like I loved in the Alabama chapter, Ridian there, such a cool kid, has his own playroom in his like parents' house, this like very preschool style playroom. And I tried not to lay, lay it on too thick because I didn't want to sound like infantilizing in the book, but it is like in a way like purposely infantilizing. Like he just wants to be like a little baby sometimes. And there was something about that that was just like so fun and cool that you get to have your own like like sacred safe space that's for all the stuff you love and this the toys you didn't have when you were a kid. And, you know, obviously we don't need to create like preschool playrooms for like every trans kid, but what is their version of a preschool playroom? What is this bubble that we can create that'll make people feel like safe and loved? Like, how can we do that? It doesn't have to be a physical space. It can be like taking them to the movies or going on a trip or doing something they really love. Like, I don't know, letting them play the clarinet or whatever. I don't know what kids do. Um, but making TikToks together, right? Because then, you know, your kid loves doing that. I think there's just like a way that we need to like remember to just let people be the kids that we used to be, you know? And do the stuff that we like to do, but, you know, in their own version of it. And yeah, I hope this reminds people of that, that they are just kids. And sometimes they're like, they're frustrating and they can be annoying (laughs) and in the way that like all kids are, but they're like beautiful and they like should be loved for that, for like for their kidness in the same way that cis kids get. So that's something that's very important. And I think for the last thing, uh, and I try not to make too much of a point of this in the book, is not every kid's an advocate. And, you know, for two of the kids, like not being an advocate was something that was really important to them. And they were like somewhat ambivalent about being part of this book at all, that I think they did it more to like make their parents happy, right? Than because it was something they wanted. And I think that, you know, Kylie and Clint um, both had a really good experience ultimately. And it was fun to hang out with them and they, you know, they enjoyed it, but it wasn't what they wanted to be doing with their time, right? And I think their their parents at some level understood that, but also understood that like that representation, maybe of that ambivalence is actually really important. So even though that might it might have been a struggle for them to let themselves be part of something like this, I'm really glad that we got to represent that because I've never seen that represented before. I've never seen a kid talk about the fact that like, I shouldn't be doing this. I don't want to be an activist. This is not what I want to be doing with my time. And to create space for that in the same way that we are creating space for these kids who are like these born activists who like want to change the world. Like, you know, Ridian wants to be a Supreme Court justice someday. And I think that kid could do it, right? And both of those stories are valid alongside each other. You know, both of those experiences are valid. You know, it just gets down to like, we got to let kids be whatever kid they want to be, even if it means they're not going to be like, you know, the next gender cool advocate. Like all those kids are doing incredible work. But like maybe trans kids can be doing other kinds of important work right alongside it. And the important work they do is just being themselves, being a kid. Like that's political right there. Just getting to live their daily lives and, you know, be happy, be joyful, be funny, and just, you know, uh, hang out with their friends. That's pretty political. You know, you can change hearts and minds right there. So I think allowing other people to have like that version of engagement and advocacy and recognizing that that's really important too. That's something that we should all be giving kids, like not just saying like, oh, you, you know, disengage from all this if you want to, but be trans in your own way, be an advocate in your own way, do whatever you want to do. That's what being a kid's for, right? Like figuring out yourself out and like not having it all together yet. So like, I love to exist in that messy space as a person. And I hope that this book does too, that it's a little bit about those messy spaces where we don't have it all figured out. And for, you know, for parents who read it, just let your kids be messy. You know, this is the time for that. You know, they've got so much time to like be an adult and pay taxes and all that stuff. This is the time to like, you know, like make some mistakes and have fun. The rest can come later. Oh my God. Nico, thank you so much for joining us today. This was amazing. It was an absolute treat to have you on. And I'm so glad you accepted our invitation to join us. Thank you both so much. I'm glad this is my first interview, but I hope parents know that there's this resource out there that just knowing that your experience is reflected in this book and that there are other families like you, I think it can make people feel less alone. So like, I hope if parents listening to this do pick up the book, they just feel a little less alone. I think we could all use that right now. Here, here.
Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is the one and only Cecilia Hindu. While Cecilia is not really an ally, but rather an icon, elder, role model for the trans community, she is our ally of the week because of the incredible work she did to uplift the lives of so many transgender people through her activism, visibility, and unyielding passion. Cecilia held leadership positions at the LGBTQ, HIV AIDS care nonprofits, GMHC, and APICHA. She co-founded a free clinic for sex workers at the Callan Lord Community Health Center, co-founded Discrim New York, an organization which successfully decriminalized sex work in New York and repealed the Walking Wall Trans Law, and founded Trans Equity Consulting. She filed a lawsuit challenging the Trump administration's removal of non-discrimination protections for gender identity in the Affordable Care Act, and was an avid supporter of trans youth, as was seen in the amazing way she supported our kids during trans prom. In addition to all of that, Cecilia was an author, publishing Faltas, Letters to Everyone in My Hometown Who Isn't My Rapist, an actress who appeared on Pose as Miss Orlando and in her autobiographical off-Broadway show, Red Ink. Cecilia will be deeply missed. We cannot describe enough what a loss this is for our community. And this is why Cecilia Gentili is our ally of the week. Rest in power, Cecilia. Now onto our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Natalie Klein. Natalie Klein is an official on Utah's State Board of Education who sparked an uproar and calls for her resignation after falsely suggesting that a teen basketball player was trans in a now since deleted Facebook post. What makes Klein such an asshole is that instead of apologizing for being a transphobe and attacking a child, she rationalized her behavior saying, we live in strange times when it is normal to pause and wonder if people are what they say they are because of the push to normalize transgenderism in our society. She didn't say, we live in a strange time when adults like me are asking kids to show their genitals to prove their gender. That's not the weird part. It's that transgenderism is supposedly making people question other people's gender. This is only the latest in a long string of incidents of harassment as a result of the bizarre fascination that elected officials and politicians have with the lives and rights of transgender minors. And this is why Natalie Klein is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Nico Lang, for joining us today. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank my co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for keeping me on my toes. Thanks, Stephen. You know I'm your ride or die with this podcast. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And folks, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Bye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.